everyone, and welcome to San Francisco Ballet's To The Point podcast. I'm Kate McKinney, the PR and Communications Manager here at SF Ballet, and I'm your host for To The Point, the audio program note you can listen to, well, I would normally say you could listen to on your walk to the theater, but things look a little bit different this year, don't they? Regardless, your friends at To The Point are here for you, even if your commute to the ballet this year looks more like a trip from your bedroom to your sofa. Today we're here to talk about Program 3, which is on the digital screen now. It's a lineup of three abstractly narrative works by three contemporary choreographers. Each of these works takes a moment from the past, say Soviet Russia, Prohibition-era America, and the United States in the 1960s, as a jumping-off point to explore ballet's ability to evoke emotion and atmosphere, even without words. Today we're going to chat a bit about these ballets and these choreographers, talk a little bit about their creation processes, each quite different from the next, and of course highlight a few things to look for as you watch each ballet. Sound good? Then let's get to the point. The first ballet on our lineup is Alexei Radmansky's Symphony No. 9. Radmansky has been called the most sought-after man in ballet by The New Yorker, an accolade that's at least as true as it isn't, as he certainly ranked with Christopher Wielden and Justin Peck as one of the hottest names out there today. He's a Benoit de la Danse recipient, twice, a MacArthur Genius Grant awardee, and the choreographer-in-residence at American Ballet Theatre. One of those Benoit de la Danse awards was for the Shostakovich trilogy, of which Symphony No. 9 is one section. Soviet composer Dmitry Shostakovich has been an important figure and inspiration for Ratmansky as he's developed his choreographic career. It was to a Shostakovich score that Ratmansky made his first big splash as a choreographer. In 2003, he choreographed The Bright Stream for the Bolshoi Ballet. The Bright Stream was composed by Shostakovich in 1935, but it was banned shortly after its premiere. Now, Radmansky is deeply interested in the restoration of ballets. He finds ballets that have either been lost or changed through time, and he either restores them to their original shape, or when that's been impossible, reimagines them for a new century. The Bright Stream falls into that latter category. It was censored, meaning the choreography was lost to time. So in typical Radmansky fashion, he reimagined the Bright Stream, which both launched his career, he was hired to direct the Bolshoi Ballet following its success, and affirmed a lifelong interest in Shostakovich's music. Another Shostakovich ballet, Concerto DSCH, created for New York City Ballet, helped Ratmansky relocate to the United States, as its success in 2008 led to an invitation to become choreographer-in-residence at American Ballet Theatre. He was the first to occupy this post, and as such, he makes at least one new work annually for that company while maintaining a productive and robust freelance choreographic schedule, something we here at SF Ballet are very grateful for. But let's talk about this work on Program 3. Symphony No. 9 is the first ballet in Radmansky's evening-length triptych Shostakovich trilogy, which SF Ballet most recently performed in London in the summer of 2019. The trilogy was created as a co-production with American Ballet Theatre, which is something I want to draw attention to. Unlike the other two ballets in this program, this ballet was made in the studio in New York with American Ballet Theatre dancers but always with the idea that San Francisco ballet dancers would eventually perform it. Repetitor Nancy Rafa came out to San Francisco to stage the ballet for the first time in 2013 and had to translate Radmansky's vision for a new group of dancers. When Radmansky started work on the trilogy in New York, the idea he had was to create a full evening ballet out of three of Shostakovich's non-dance works. 
The impetus was not biographical per se, but Shostakovich's work is often deeply personal, even when abstract. And in a similar way, Radvansky, in all three parts of the trilogy, but certainly here in Symphony No. 9, seems to infuse the dancing with Shostakovich's own life story, one full of artistic triumph, but also, like all Soviet artists, at the whim of an oppressive government. He was twice denounced and heavily censored in his lifetime. And there's this kind of anxiety in this ballet that underlines the often joyful dancing. This kind of anxious joy arises, of course, from the music, which is Shostakovich's Symphony No. 9 in E-flat major, Opus 70. Written at the conclusion of World War II, it was commissioned to be a celebration of Joseph Stalin and Russia's victory. But instead, Shostakovich wrote a fun, even funny piece. It was perceived as mocking Stalin, and three years after its premiere, the work was banned. All of this history feeds into Radmansky's treatment of the score. In terms of what to look for in this ballet, notice the distinctions between the leading dancers. The first couple you meet isn't the main couple, but instead of kind of archetypical perfect Soviet pair, dancing steps inspired by Russian folk dance. The second couple are perhaps Shostakovich and his wife. And then there's a third leading man often referred to in rehearsals as the angel. Watch for him and how he seems to rise above the fear that permeates the rest of the work. The second ballet on this program is a brand new world premiere ballet called Wooden Dimes, crafted explicitly for film. Choreographer Danielle Rowe is a familiar figure to San Francisco audiences. She's the former associate artistic director of SF Danceworks, and she's had two ballets appear on San Francisco ballet galas, Unsaid, which premiered at the 2019 gala, and For Pixie, which was danced last year in 2020. But before that, she toured the world with contemporary company Netherlands Dance Theatre, and before that, she was a principal dancer with Houston Ballet and the Australian Ballet. She's also married to San Francisco Ballet's very own principal dancer, Luke Ingham. Danielle Rowe started choreographing in earnest when she moved to San Francisco, and you can see the impact of her varied career in her work, the classical underpinnings of her time performing with ballet companies, but a theatricality and contemporary hybridity that seems influenced by some of the choreographers she worked with at NDT, like Yuri Killian, Matzek, Crystal Pite, and Paul Lightfoot in Solion. When SF Ballet's artistic director Helgi Thomason commissioned Rowe to make a new ballet for the 2021 season, the intention was that it would be her first main stage work, the first ballet she'd make for the company with a full cast and with all the company's production resources put behind it. The coronavirus pandemic, of course, caused everything to change, but Thomason wanted to honor this commitment, and in part because she is a local choreographer, Roe was able to reimagine her ballet not as a stage work, but as a screen work, choreographed not only for the human eye, but also for the camera lens. Choreographing for camera is of course different, whereas in a theater, the audience has the freedom to look where they want, guided of course by lighting, stage design, and choreographic gesture, in film, the director guides the viewer's gaze, drawing attention to specific moments and gestures in a different and perhaps more explicit way. Of course, the choreographic process hasn't been impacted only by the need to move to film, but also by the pandemic itself. Although made in the San Francisco Ballet Studios on San Francisco Ballet Dancers, this rehearsal process has looked very different from most others. For one, Roe worked with a smaller subsection of the company, Current filming guidelines in San Francisco limit the number of people who can be on a set in any given time, so casts need to remain smaller than perhaps originally intended, and dancers can't move between their quote-unquote pods. Everyone's also on a testing regimen and wears masks so that everyone remains as safe as possible. 
Now, Danielle not only choreographs this ballet, but she also directs the film. She's been increasingly involved in film projects throughout the pandemic. Wooden Dimes is to a commissioned score by James Stevenson, and it tells the story of a 1920s couple who have to navigate the perils of stardom as one of them, Betty Fine, danced by Sarah Van Patten, shoots to the top of her field, leaving her husband, danced by Luke Ingham, a little worse for wear. The title of the ballet, Wooden Dimes, refers to an old idiom, don't take any wooden nickels, meaning keep an eye out for yourself. Don't let yourself be swindled out there. Finally, the third ballet on this program is Swimmer by SF Ballet choreographer-in-residence Yuri Posikov. This fan-favorite ballet is a true San Francisco production, featuring music by SF Ballet Orchestra member, double bassist Shinji Eshima, and created here on our dancers in 2015 by a choreographer who knows them all incredibly well, and who, of course, had a distinguished career as a principal dancer with the company. There were no COVID restrictions when this ballet was made, and indeed, it involves a huge cast, including students from San Francisco Ballet School. But that said, it feels almost made for this digital era, featuring stunning projections by local director and producer Kate Duhamel that blend animation and dance in such a way that it can be hard to see where one begins and the other ends. The ballet is inspired by John Cheever's surrealistic short story, The Swimmer, in which a young man swims from swimming pool to swimming pool throughout the neighborhood before finally returning home to find his own house abandoned. In an interview with dance educator Mary Wood in 2015, when the ballet premiered, Posikov spoke a bit about how he first encountered the story. Okay, this start a long, long time ago in Soviet Union time in Moscow. I met my wife, and she was studying in the university. And in university, it was a program, American culture, literature. So John Cheer was in this program. Mm -hmm. So, and she trying to educate me. She gave me this book. She said, you have to read it. So she pushed me to read it. It's very interesting, but when I've been 21 years old, completely young, but this story of John Chiu stays all my life in my head. Mm -hmm. So through the, my life, I never thought that I will move to the United States to live. I never thought about this, but it's kind of miracle. Now I'm here and John Chiu with me <laughs> and everything, it's, it's a little bit cuckoo. Sometimes, yeah, I, I can believe it, but it's happened, yeah. In Posikov's Swimmer, the titular swimmer travels not from pool to pool, but from American story to American story. This swimmer visits J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, Jack London's Martin Eden, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, Mike Nichols' film The Graduate, and Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. It's a kind of adventure through 1960s Americana as dreamed by a young man living in Soviet Russia. An inverse, in a way, of the story Radmansky tells through Symphony No. 9. Yet also one of self-discovery, of a man searching to find himself in a world that seems oppressive and bleak, even while colorfully, even distractingly, psychedelic. In the same interview with Mary Wood, composer Shinji Eshima explains this literary aspect of the work as revealing something special about the choreographer himself, and he also explains his process of creating the score for this ballet built around a series of Tom Waits songs, and shows off a special instrument. I think first you need to know 
Yuri is just about the most loving person on the planet, you know, the most sensitive, and, and he feels things. And the music of Tom Waits are, are, is one of those art qualities that he deeply feels, and it was key for him to have them part of this ballet. And the Cheever's story, you kind of find out about the swimmer through these uh, scenes in the pools with the people he interacts with. And you get to know the swimmer by those interactions as he progresses on his way back home. It's a good analogy, I think, for, for people who, who go through life and, and you know, want to return to this, this so-called home. Um, in Yuri's ballet, at least I think, um, we discover through these series of pools a lot about Yuri. And that is, you find out about what Yuri thinks is beautiful. And I think that's the most m miraculous thing about this guy. I mean, really, he's, he's the, you know, Jerome Robbins of our time. He's just, the, he's a total genius. And, and to work with him, it's just, it's blinding. It's frustrating as heck and, and stressful. But the end result is, is something that I could never, um, I can't live without it at this point now. Um, I forgot, where, where was I? Where, where were we? The, about? the Tom Waits songs Tom and Waits, weaving yeah. your well, composition around it. The things that Yuri finds beautiful. Um, it's the literature of Nabokov. It's um, the, the uh, uh, films of Mike Nichols. It's uh, Marilyn Monroe. It's Jack London. It's the, it's, it's, uh, uh, the paintings of Edward Hopper. It's um, um, uh, also J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. Um, all of these things, um, and, and central to this is, is this feeling from inside that Tom Waits has in his songs. It's not only the lyrics, but it's also just the, the pure sound. And um, Yuri captures all of this, it's remarkable, this entire lifespan basically from, from the house scene at the beginning, the, the domestic scene, all the way to the very end, which is a, a, a scene of, of uh, Jack London uh, in the book Martin Eden, where I, I guess I shouldn't give, a, give, a, give it away, but basically everything you see um, are scenes of what Yuri finds beautiful. And that's what I think is remarkable about this, this ballet, because you really learn about his heart when you see all of these different scenes. In your composition, um, some pieces that you might compose are, are scored from beginning to end with themes and recapitulations and so on and so forth. This strikes me as just a different kind of composition because you've taken your own composed music and woven it around tapestry-like, <clears throat> these songs, and, and lots of other, there's quotes from all sorts of things. Say a little bit more about what we're going to hear. Um, well, when Yuri approached this years ago, um, imagine what I'm supposed to do with Tom Waits's music, um, Martin Eden, which I'd never read, um, and uh, movie scores, and a drum set necessity, which I'd never written for. I mean, I grew up listening to Brahms. I never knew about Tom Waits. So it was an entirely different genre that, that he was asking me. But once again, I could not 
you know, say no. And being fed every now and then these, these uh, vignettes of what he, he wanted, it was, it was difficult to extract. It's kind of like pulling teeth, but um, eventually we, we put this thing together and, and uh, it became overwhelming. There was just so much in it, literally from, from Hollywood, you know, to Catcher in the Rye. And I thought to myself, um, this, this ballet has everything, you know, except the, the kitchen sink. So, of course, I had to say, well, why not put the kitchen sink into this score? And I brought it here just to show you. <laughs> this is the actual kitchen sink that is going to be performed for you later. But as proof to you that it does work as an instrument, I'm going to just play a few notes. Please. <laughs> so, it play, it's performed a little louder than that in the pit, but, but the idea is that this, this ballet has, has everything in it. This ballet is full of special moments, but a few things to look for in particular. For one, ballet is uniquely suited to evoke a sense of altered relationships to gravity. Think swimming swans and flying sylphs. And Pazikov makes use of the form's ability here in repeated swimming solos for the central man, sweeping arms and rotating jumps that build one after the other after the other, create a kind of vortex or current that really gives the sense of pushing through water and the freedom of a body floating and freed of gravity. Notice too how these solos change as the man continues on his journey. His movement changes as he changes. Also, this ballet is full of star turns for a variety of principal dancers. Notice how each evokes a character immediately with almost a single gesture. You don't need to know the stories to understand the emotional impact. And this ballet is also a chance for the corps de ballet to shine, especially the men. The men's dance toward the end of the piece brings the work to its climax. And that's it for program three. Three ballets full of emotion, physicality, and more than a hint of story. Thank you so much for tuning in to To The Point and meet me right back here for previews of the rest of the season's performances. If you haven't checked out our other podcasts, including recordings of our popular Meet the Artist interviews, you should go do that. You can find them on our website or in any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. Hit subscribe and you'll get our episodes downloaded as soon as they're posted. In addition, please do leave us a rating and review in the Apple Store and reach out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SF Ballet. We'd love to hear from you and your ratings and reviews help us reach new and bigger audiences. Thanks for listening and see you soon on a screen near you. Thank you.